I bring you, brethren, to our seventh study, taken from Psalm 133, one of the songs of ascent that the Jewish pilgrims would rejoice in refreshing their hearts with, both in terms of just the tradition of singing these psalms, but the more attentive among them, reflecting afresh on their spiritual meaning. Now, in that, we are coming to our seventh study, and as it happens, we are also on the fourth study of looking into the question of what is it like? What is biblical unity like? And we are seeing that we need go no further than the second and third verses of this very psalm to discover that God tells us himself what it's like. He gives us two similes to explain how to think about biblical unity. And as we stressed in last Sunday's teaching, these two similes are two additional efforts by the Spirit of God to underscore the initial point that was made in the first verse, that biblical unity is first good, it is first moral, it is first conducted upon the lines and the arrangement of God before we get to the pleasant, before we get to the moving, before we get to that element that we human beings that are perhaps dispositionally always throughout our race history, but even perhaps a little more so in more current times, we tend to lean toward the emotional. We tend to lean toward the moment and the relation that we can derive out of the moment. And so therefore, we might find more of a connection with the aesthetic than we do with the ethic. But we're seeing that God directs us through that first verse and then steps us back and gives us two similes, two pictures by which he reinforces this idea and then, of course, opens up in beautiful ways a whole visage by which we can derive more spiritual understanding. And so we were emphasizing the parallelism between these two similes, that of Aaron and that of Hermon, that of the high priest and that of the high place. And I want to continue this afternoon to reflect primarily on the simile of Mount Hermon. Let's just read Psalm 133, 3a and b. As the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. I stress to your hearts again the necessity of the peak of Hermon, the necessity of the arrangement that God describes to us when he says that the dew descends. This is parallel with what is said about Aaron. The oil runs down. If we're wondering how we get to biblical unity, if we're wondering how to look at it and understand God's design so that we can replicate it among ourselves, we must pay attention to the way in which it works. Unity descends like the dew descends from Hermon. Unity runs down like the oil runs down upon Aaron's beard, even to the skirts of his garment. Biblical unity starts by getting things right at the top. 
because the top is necessary. And this is a confirmation of the need of God's order and what we can rightly call a hierarchical arrangement. But of course, it also is the case that the top does not exist for itself. Indeed, it is supported by the fullness of God's people and God's plan. Think, for example, of Mount Hermon. There would be no peak if there was not below it the earth that supports the peak. And that is very definitely a part of the way in which God has arranged the mountain. And so it is also with Aaron. He is the high priest, but below him is arranged all the supporting ministries that carry out God's purpose among the people and the people themselves who ultimately are the redeemed of the Lord to whom the Lord wants to bring the blessing of biblical unity. But we are stressing that you have to get things right at the top if you are going to experience the kind of unity that God is looking for. Now we know that in the New Testament arrangement that ministry is also set in the church. So there are functional distinctions within the body of Christ and there are apostles and there are prophets and there are evangelists and pastors and teachers and not all are apostles or prophets, but they are there to minister to God's people, and they are there to oversee the work of God's Spirit, and they are there to communicate and dispense the blessing down from heaven. And if we disregard the arrangement that God is painting before us in these similes, and we opt for a kind of ecclesiology that seeks to arrive at unity without giving attention to the need to get things right from the top down, then we will not arrive at what Psalm 133 speaks of so beautifully in such a short amount of words. But here again, in the New Testament assembly, Paul tells us, for example, in 1 Corinthians 12, in verse 21, that the head cannot say to the feet, I have no need of you. This, of course, is underscoring what we're stressing here, that first we must give attention and absorb and accept the reality that the Word of God is clear. That do that you're looking for, it's not going to come up from the earth. It's going to descend down from a higher height. That oil and blessing and anointing that you would like to have, it's not just going to arise up from the populace. It's not going to rise up from the collected body as such. The scriptures are clear. It is like the dew that pours down from the position that God has ordained through whom and by which it should begin. But we're beginning to see the fullness of the beauty of what this picture speaks to when we start to tie in the idea, for example, that I have just mentioned to you. And it's obvious when you reflect on it that certainly Aaron, for example, has a head, but that head is supported by the body. And if the body isn't there, then what happens, dear brothers and sisters? The head is on the ground. The head winds up down at the bottom where we might say the lowest member in the church is if we're thinking in a hierarchical 
style of reflection. And there's nothing wrong with that hierarchical reflection. That is exactly what Psalm 133 speaks of. But what I'm emphasizing to your minds and spirits now is if the head, in this case Aaron, or if the peak of Hermon feels as though it's got its position and it can use that position in any way and begins to feel like I don't need the rest of the body. I'm not in an arrangement within which I'm functioning, but I depend upon the support of that which is below me. Then both the head and the peak wind up on the ground. Now it's interesting to think about what Peter has to say in terms of the building project that God is presently engaged in. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, we read, Ye also, and that is a plural in the Greek, kai autoi, ye also, all of you, are living stones, and you are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood. And it so happens that the Greek for holy priesthood is in the singular, Grammatically, there may be a point here that is being made, and that is, though all of us are individual living stones that are being placed in our proper position within the building project of God, and some necessarily are higher than others based on how God is constructing His temple, yet collectively, we all function as a priesthood. We all function together to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scriptures, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Now I just want to make an observation here that I will be elucidating more fully through this message. And that is, depending on the language that is being used to, to speak metaphorically of God's building project, sometimes the language starts with the foundation. And the emphasis is placed on the foundation. In this case, Jesus is, well... He's the cornerstone. I suppose that's not exactly the language of foundation, although we know in 1 Corinthians 3, Jesus is the foundation that alone can be laid. So he's the foundation. He's the cornerstone. And we are told in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Once again, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. So if you're thinking about God's building project, sometimes the language of Scripture speaks in terms of an emphasis of you start from the bottom and you build up. But the language of Psalm 133 is emphasizing the importance of the top. Now what we're seeing here, and as I will be illustrating further, is that really it's not about a top-to-bottom building process or a bottom to top building process from the common methods of the way men think about how things are built. What we're talking about here is observing divine order and observing God's plan and arrangement. And so Psalm 133 that clearly emphasizes that unity starts from the top 
and works its way down is as true and as communicative as is the idea that in order for biblical unity to begin and to start and be approved of God, it has to start with the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so with respect to Christ, of course, we have a beautiful idea that is emerging. He is the foundation. He is the cornerstone. And in that, in that, ultimately, he is that high priest that functions in the place of Aaron. He is the tip of Mount Hermon that is seated in the heavenlies. We see that Christ is the foundation, the cornerstone, as well as the peak and the head of the church. But these ideas, as they relate to ourselves are nonetheless very helpful in enabling us to think through how we should go about seeking biblical unity and discerning among the various methods and objectives that men have been want to implement to get to biblical unity. You see, dear brothers and sisters, as I was saying a moment ago, the emphasis that we're presenting to your hearts is not to be heard as the idea of I'm supporting a top-down ecclesiastic structure. And you're thinking just within the way in which men think of organizations and men think of human relationships. I am saying there's a hierarchical arrangement within the church of Jesus Christ and within the home and within all of God's created order. I am saying that. But I am not stressing the idea of a top-down arrangement in the way that men might typically think of that concept. But nor am I stressing, as some would prefer, especially in our times, that I would be enlightened to understand that there is a grassroots movement and we for too long have been trying to work within a top-down arrangement. The time has come for the people to speak, for democracy to rise, for the equaling to come, and for churches to fall in step and begin a bottom-up church structure so that we can finally get to unity. What I am saying to all of us is it's not about that with respect to how men conceive of how they relate to each other among themselves. Brothers and sisters, as we've already stressed in previous studies, and I have to direct your hearts back to the previous teachings because these build on one another. We've already stressed that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all come into our relationship with one another equally lost and equally in need of the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But while the ground is level at the foot of the cross, the cross itself is on the hill of Golgotha. It's elevated. And what I'm pointing to is the fact that the cross is elevated and Jesus is higher than the rest of us. And it is he, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 18, that sets the members, every one of them in the body as it pleases him. I understand it says there that God has set the members, every one of them in the body as it pleases him. But of course, we know that our God is triune. And so that isn't absent the reality that God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God the Father is the one who sets the members in the body as it pleases him. So what you're seeing is not so much a top-down or bottom-up 
up approach to arriving at unity and how a church should be thought about and structured and how you think of yourself within that arrangement. Am I at the bottom? Am I at the top? You can also think of this within the home. Wives can ask themselves, well, am I at the bottom or am I at the top? And we could start to feel as though that is a comment on our relative worth. It has nothing to do with it. It has to do with God's arrangement after redemption when we know each other no longer after the flesh and the arrangement of God is the moving around of all us dead stones who have now found new life in Christ and because he seeks to build something and he is a God of order, he begins to arrange us in the way that pleases him. And that results in a hierarchical relationship, but it is not to be thought of as a typical human top-down structure because it's quite other than that. You see, ecclesiology, the way the church should be built, the way the church should come into being and be thought about and be designed and be talked about and be reflected on. Ecclesiology should be classified under theology, not under anthropology. What I mean by that is it isn't man that is building God's church. It's God that is building his church and that statement that might sound relatively trivial because it would seem to be so obvious is anything but obvious if you've been paying attention to the methods of church building in our time. What I'm saying is when you think about a church and how you would build a church, you don't arrive at that as through the method of men discussing this and reflecting on various business models and other plans and programs and concepts and theories and putting it under the classification of anthropology such that you then wind up discussing among yourselves and feeling among yourselves, are we sort of in an, arra in an arrangement of a top-down or a bottom-up church? How do we identify? What are you guys like? Are you top-down or bottom-up? And we're talking under anthropology. We're talking that way about God's church, reflecting within the domain of ourselves as, as men and women, as human beings and human relationships. What I'm trying to say to you, dear brothers and sisters, is that the way that the church should be thought about, the way that unity should be thought about, should be under the category of theology. Psalm 133 is God telling us how He wants to build His church, how He wants to arrive at beautiful biblical unity, and He is the one that says, ultimately, there will be a high priest at the head. And ultimately, there will be a peak that is Hermon. And the blessing will flow down from that. And we've already observed and will continue to observe that it certainly is the case that preeminently we can say that Jesus Christ is the high priest. And we can say that Jesus Christ is, as it were, the peak of Hermon that always keeps the refreshing waters prepared for his people in time of trial. But 
The fact of the matter that when you think about Aaron and you think of his garments, you think of the hem of his garment, you necessarily see a triangular shape. You necessarily see a hierarchical arrangement. The oil goes down from his head to his beard, to his body, to the hem of his garment. Clearly, brothers and sisters, under the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ, he sets ministry beneath him, his ministers. And the ministry that and word that he gives them is to be dispensed down to the body of Christ. And similarly, under the peak of Hermon, there is the rest of the arrangement that constitutes the mountain that brings us all the way down to the valley. And that similarly depicts the way that the church of Jesus Christ should be arranged. Listen to the language of Jesus himself when he speaks about the construction of his church, when he is addressing Peter in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus responds to Peter stating that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And effectively, Jesus begins by saying to Peter, Peter, as it is with you relative to all these other Jews and indeed all of humanity, you did not arrive at that understanding on your own. You are blessed, Simon, son of John. See, I know your name, Simon, Jesus is saying. And the first thing I want to tell you is that there's nothing that is unique about you in any special way such that you can claim to be the first pope or the premier apostle or any other position on the merits of your own intuition and native abilities. He said you are blessed not because of what flesh and blood has done for you, but what my Father in heaven has done for you. And so now we're moving to an arrangement that God is ordaining. But mark it well, it is absolutely an arrangement because Jesus goes on and says in verse 18, I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And I am well aware that there's been a lengthy debate about how that should be applied to the person Peter over against the idea of his confession and how does that all work. It is patently obvious that he was in no position akin to the popes of church history for many reasons, including the fact that Paul withstood him to the face. That's hardly something that the underlings can do to the Pope, or at least historically it was never thought of when a Pope has infallibility and the like. So we won't digress into that. What I'm seeing here is that Jesus is saying, I will build my church. That's what I want to emphasize. And Peter, you will certainly play a role. Why? Because you're a saved man and you know that I am the Redeemer. And that is applicable to men and women, boys and girls. That is all of humans, every creature under heaven that believes in the gospel. In that sense, there is neither male nor female. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither Scythian, Jew, or any other designation. All of us are equal in Christ Jesus. But Jesus does say to Peter, you are Peter. I know your name and you will play a role in my church according to what? According to how the father decides to build the New Testament church. And so this is not a function of anthropology. This is a function of theology. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's a very significant and important 
mental distinction because we shouldn't be arguing or feeling we shouldn't be arguing about our relative positions or feeling better than less than left behind elevated jockeying for positions contentions and strifes and vainglory or anything else this is about god's arrangement does it manifest as some in functional positions over others though all equally the children of god and all equally loved of god and all equally having a significant and an important position in the full project that god has just like Aaron's feet have to be there to hold up his head just like the bottom earth and rocks at the foundation of Hermon's got to be there or the peak can't do its job but you have to get things right at the top you have to pay attention to that and that's not a small observation unless the lord builds the house you're wasting your time if you're building it under the category of anthropology you're wasting your time build it under the direction of almighty god when church unity starts from the work of man the theoretic question of whether one should follow a top down or bottom up approach is irrelevant neither one will work There's all sorts of debate in the literature that can be categorized under those two headings. Essentially a top down, we have our Roman Catholic, Anglican, Episcopal and celebrity-based mega churches. These all follow a top down ecclesiology. All of these churches and how they arrive at unity and what keeps cohesion among them, it is a very definite top down structure. But then there are those who would argue that no what we should have is a bottom up approach to arriving at church unity our congregational particularly modern congregational churches many baptist churches methodist churches as a matter of fact also not a few anabaptist ecclesiologies employ a bottom up method famously among the Quakers for example and many others think about how we should do church and they recognize that it has so often been the case that positions of leadership have been so egregiously lived out and when the shepherd falls and the sheep scatter and they want to avoid that experience and so they feel like the democratic process the building up from the bottom is the way to go But what we need to understand is just for starters let's just make this observation in the light of Psalm 133 whether you're going to try the Roman Catholic or the congregational method the bible is telling you dear friend ultimately you have to get things right at the top or the dew won't be coming down or the oil won't be flowing down to the hem of the garment you know if you flip this analogy upside down you get the crazy image of the peak of hermon on the plateau of jordan in a very unstable arrangement that's going to hurt a lot of people in the valley if there's just a little bit of a tremor because it's weighted improperly and with aaron you get something i won't even discuss because aaron had to have linen breeches when he climbed up the stairs so his nakedness wasn't exposed but if you flip aaron upside down the hem of his garment's not going to be where it's supposed to be it's going to be down around his head and you're going to be exposing the nakedness and the shame 
of what otherwise would be a well-ordered biblical arrangement. You're going to be manifesting your own democratic shame before we're done with all of this. Biblical unity, in other words, New Testament ecclesiology, is not about the methods of men. It is about the arrangement of God. What we're stressing, my dear brothers and sisters, in this particular study is while we have been giving attention to the obvious hierarchical image that God is impressing upon us, while we are giving attention to how unity starts from the top down, we are in this study making it clear to your hearts that we're not talking about a human endeavor. We're not talking about, okay, so let's start and build something from the top down. Let's really emphasize the authority of, of the pastor or the leader as such. Let's just do that. That'll solve everything. That's not what we're saying. We're saying what God is wanting to get across to us is that biblical unity respects the arrangement of God. But what you can know for sure is that God always arranges things in order. And order means some things function in a position of higher responsibility than other pieces of whatever God has created and arranged. And of course, ultimately, the hierarchical nature of all the creation points like an arrowhead like Mount Hermon extended up to the ultimate point into the third heavens or the heavens of heavens, it points to Almighty God. When you have a leveling objective, whether one recognizes it or not, you wind up bringing God down. And that is not the way to go about this. Think, for example, how this works. We're talking about God arranging things. Within the New Testament, what sort of activities do we read about in terms of how various individuals functioned within those pristine days wherein not everything was perfect? Think about Laodicea, think about the Corinthians, think about the Galatians and sundry other things. Not everything was perfect, but they nonetheless had a powerful impact and they are the paradigm that we are to reflect upon when we examine ourselves. So think into the pages of the New Testament and consider with me how did they arrange themselves among themselves? How did they get there? Did they simply cast lots? That's what they did before they received the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Did they take a vote? Did they just choose men that seemed to be better gifted and more educated? Or was it more along these lines? As we read in Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 2, the saints... We're not so much going to seminary, which I'm not opposed to. The minister of God must study to show himself approved. He is to be a workman in the word. He is to know the languages and he is to know church history. He has to be apt to teach. At least we need men in that capacity who are going to be leading the work of Almighty God. It's not by accident that a man like Paul played the role that he did in the New Testament era. It was by design, that a man who was well-educated and very gifted was used of God to oversee, as he himself says, all the churches. He had the care of all the churches. He was a wise architect because he understood how the plan fit together. 
And I just want to say to this day, and there are countless books that have been written about the Bible and have reflected on law as it relates to grace and every thought you can come up with. And we're still learning from Paul, who wrote in the 60s of this era. You know what I'm trying to say? He wrote in 60 AD, not in 1960, not in 2021. He wrote in the 60s and he had more insight, more clarity, more perspicuity on these things than all of us combined. It's just amazing. I know it's the Holy Spirit, but there's the anointing. It's not like he didn't understand what he was saying. There's the anointing coming from God on someone about whom he could have said, I am an apostle, not of men, neither by men, but by God. And you Galatians need to understand that if we're going to get this fixed. These others are not in my position, and you should not be listening to them because they don't have that same place in God's arrangement. Not because I'm natively better than them, because look how it even started with the Apostle Paul. We read in Acts chapter 13, I started to say not so much that they're going to seminary, which is important. I mean, if you're in the right seminary, by the way, which you'd have a hard time finding the right ones, but I think there's still some out there that will teach you um, the fear of God as you study the scriptures of God. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, I can't think of an image that shows the people of God at a more level pre-position before something gets arranged among them. They're just all praying. It doesn't matter how much they know relative to one another. They're all praying and they're all fasting. The least educated is fasting and praying. The most educated is fasting and praying. The one with the most money is fasting and praying. The one with the least money is fasting and praying. The one who has been following Jesus since, you know, the day, the day he called Peter and John is, is praying. And the one who just walked in the door is fasting and praying. They're all ministering to the Lord, fasting and praying. And they didn't take a vote. But we read the Holy Spirit said, I'm going to make an arrangement among you. Separate Unto me Barnabas and Paul for the work whereunto I have called them. And what you read in the third verse is effectively the church saying, we accept that. Praise the Lord, we're okay for that. You don't have Silas saying, no, 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 wait a minute, what about me? I'm a prophet. I'm better fit for this. As you'll discover later, because Saul and Barnabas won't get along so well over the issue of Mark, and thus saith the Lord, I can see and envision, or something like that. You know what I'm trying to say? They're not doing that. They are supporting what God is arranging. And when they fasted and prayed, they lay hands on them and they sent them away. So they were sent by the Holy Spirit. And so begins the great building project of churches to the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the Mediterranean world. Why? Because men who were level with respect to their relative claims to preeminence, they were to be just servants of one another. And if you have a desire to be useful among God, then fast and pray with the right heart. In other words, be the servant of all. Come together and just start a prayer meeting. Just fast and pray and trust God. And then God will arrange as he pleases. And that's what we see there. When God was speaking to Ananias, if we back up the story of Paul, after he is converted on the road to Damascus, you know the story with Paul. You know his pre-story. I mean, in many respects, 
He's out of the grouping that Jesus was speaking about in Matthew 23. He's from among the Pharisees. We later know that the Pharisees caused a lot of issues in the churches. This was an individual for many reasons, spiritual men like Ananias and Paul and John and James for that matter, might instinctively be hesitant about giving him the right hand of fellowship. They might feel like you're just coming into the faith. You just recently had to get knocked off your high horse. You're not fit for this position. And I'm not saying they're crazy. If we are building the church among ourselves from an anthropological orientation. I am not saying, incidentally, parenthetically, that the theological respect that I'm advocating means we just let anything happen that comes our way. No, I'm serious about the text. Somehow the Holy Spirit meaningfully said, separate Paul and Barnabas, and then they had an anointing that indicated that that was indeed the mind of the Lord. And as Paul said at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I think, he says, if anyone among you is a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write are the words and commands of God. Why do I say that? I'm saying that makes the principle that has always been the case, that the relatively spiritual within God's family can hear the shepherd's voice. And that's a very critical component to all of this. If none of us can hear the shepherd's voice, then what's the use of the Holy Spirit saying, I'm putting my anointing on that man, and somehow the church of Jesus Christ can hear it. In Acts chapter 13, it may have been said by a prophet. It could have been said audibly. I believe those things can still happen. They don't have to happen that way. There can be less dramatic processes by which a man is evidently placed in a position of leadership. He needs to meet the conditions. That's what conditions are all about. Why do we have conditions for ministry? Because you have to meet the conditions to qualify or you are otherwise unqualified. And that's respecting the idea of getting things right from the top down. But what I'm saying here is God said to Ananias, a prophet relative to Paul, Ananias was hesitant to welcome Paul into the Christian churches. And he said, but he is a chosen vessel unto me. Oh, would to God that the times were restored and broadly so among the churches of Christ when that kind of statement makes all the difference. He is a chosen vessel unto me. And when God's sheep hear that, number one, they would have to be in a context where God is exalted to start with so that we're not in some sort of democratic arrangement where God barely has a vote. But if you're in a state or a situation when the sovereignty of God is exalted and you're encouraged and you are exhorted to seek God and to be serious men and women in God's word and in your relationship, you follow what I'm trying to say? And when God said to Ananias, Ananias, however you feel about him, is not the critical consideration. He is a chosen vessel unto me. I will show him what his ministry is. I will show him what suffering he must go through because I know the whole plan. And dear brothers and sisters, I feel sorry for the cessationists who 
lack the ability to appreciate how that that dynamic should still be in place today. Jesus should be building his church and he arranges things such that you can begin to see emerge under the high priest of the Lord Jesus Christ, certainly, but a functional ministry that is akin to Aaron. And then there are supports under that. And I'm not saying it devolves into a single man, but I am nonetheless pointing you to the available similes that God himself inspired. Don't Take it out on me if you feel compelled to do so. Psalm 133 says, It's like the anointing oil that came upon the head and ran down the beard all the way down to the hem of Aaron's garment. It's like the dew that comes first on the top of Hermon. And thank God that there is a peak that's high enough in the sky that it can refresh after evaporation brings the water and the moistures that could somewhat be corrupted through the valleys it brings it up into the sky and through a process of ecology that God has arranged it is purified it becomes reserved in snows on the top of Mount Hermon and when the heat arises and the dry times are felt in the dry seasons in Israel then that dew It isn't the sovereign reign of God that he does in the early and latter reign. You follow what I'm saying? There are times when there are just sovereign, refreshing uh, showers from Almighty God. But to the extent that you can get close to a genuine Hermon, you can have something quite equivalent to that because you can have the dews of Hermon that themselves are very copious even in relatively dry times. And so to the extent that you are positioned in right relationship with Aaron, as it were, using the imagery as we should of Aaron, then the anointing will reach your soul as well. What I'm saying is that God said about Paul, he is a chosen vessel unto me. And Paul was well aware of it, as I've already mentioned to you. Biblical unity, dear brothers and sisters, is not about men building from the top down or the bottom up. If you're thinking about this whole thing in the context of anthropology, you're wasting your time. Biblical unity is about a colored man who was half blind, who moved from Houston, Texas to L.A., California in 1906 and stuck his head in a box and just kept himself low before God and interceded. His name is William Seymour. He became the leader of a revival that occurred in California and affected much of the world. It is not my position that there weren't revivals happening elsewhere, incidentally, in that same time frame. But nonetheless, that was one of the moves of God. Maybe somebody thinks, well, that wasn't a perfect move of God. Well, you show me which one was. And you show me which move has had continuous, perfect fruit from its inception in perpetuity. Would it be the Reformation? Would it be Methodism? Would it be the relative reform turn that occurred under the reign of Henry VIII and Thomas Kramer and so on? No, none of these things has sustained the same impetus and purity that it originally began with. But if you read church history and have a sensitive heart to these things, I think you will recognize with me. And that's why I give you this image 
What I'm saying to you is relative to the work that happened in Azusa Street at the turn of the 20th century, there was absolutely, by all historians, a clear leader. His name was William J. Seymour. Was he the most educated man? The answer is no. Was he the most likely man? The answer is no. He was a colored brother. Was he a man that had the best vision? The answer is no. He was blind in one eye. Was he the man that was likely to be the most well-received? The answer is no. Did he get there because he forced his way in? The answer is no. He hardly could have done that. I suppose he could have attempted it. And he experienced opposition frequently. But what he did is he just went to prayer before Almighty God. And I'm trying to show you that what you're seeing here is the kind of situation that Psalm 130 is speaking about. Psalm 133, excuse me, is not speaking about a Pope structure. It is not speaking about an Anglican structure. It is not speaking about a celebrity megachurch individual at the top building this great edifice and this great move and everyone buys his books and thinks about this person and all of those sorts of things. I'm saying that the image that God is depicting to us is the innocence of a high priest by the name of Aaron, being chosen by Almighty God and placed in that position to function on his behalf. And he better get things right or he'll be removed. And it's the beauty and the simplicity of the pink of, peak of Mount Hermon that God himself, as it were, with his own hands, created by just raising up the collective dirt to a peak. And so with William J. Seymour, he wasn't a man who walked around like I'm the most important person in the room and everybody's got to listen to me. But he did exhort. I said that he kept his head in a couple of boxes, but don't think for a moment that he wasn't able to carry out spiritual authority. He did. In fact, many times he did specifically by putting his head in a box. Literally, when opposition, and it came in, not infrequently, when opposition came into the meetings in Azusa Street, he would just put his head in a box and start praying, and the Spirit of God would come down, and that's what I'm talking about. That's the anointing coming down from the head, down through the body, down through the beard, and he did have a beard, by the way, onto the very hem of the garment. That's what we're talking about. This is a divine arrangement. There was a contemporary minister that visited Azusa Street while William J. Seymour was pastoring and leading the work, this man started from Kentucky and then went to California, Los Angeles, and then wound up going to Chicago. His name is William, William Howard Durham. And in the Apostolic Faith article, Durham writes this about William J. Seymour. And keep in mind what we're talking about here. We're talking about the peak of Hermon and the necessity to get things right at the top. But what does this look like? Durham says of Seymour, he walks and talks with God. His power is in his weakness. He seems to maintain a helpless dependence on God as if a simple-hearted child. And at the same time is so filled with God that you feel the love and power every time you get near him. That's what this is like. It's like a 26-year-old Welsh boy of a Welsh coal miner by the name of Evan Roberts, who was on the top of Mount Hermon, as it were, doing what? Saying to everyone, listen to me, I'm the leader. 
making sure that he had his business cards printed out so he could pass them out to everybody and let them know he's the pastor. He was up on the top of Mount Hermon, and he was indeed there because the anointing flowed down through him. That's a fact. But he was up on the mount, top of Mount Hermon saying, Lord, bend me. That's what he was doing. He was like William J. Seymour. And both of those situations resulted in the development of beautiful brotherly unity to some extent. This is about a great leader and a lawgiver by the name of Moses, who clearly had a position of authority, was clearly above Datham and Abiram, and they found out. But this is about a great leader, a lawgiver, a word preacher, a receptor of what God had to say, being known within that same ministry as the meekest man on earth, feeling incapable even to speak and falling on his face in prayer when his enemies came against him. It's about a man who was called to the top of Mount Sinai and you find him saying, not Lord, show everybody my glory, but Lord, show me your glory. He wanted to see more of the glory of God. He wanted to simply experience God in his own life. And he just became an instrument of that glory to others. And he was willing to veil it to what extent was necessary so as to enable his brothers to come in association with what God had brought to his own heart. It is about this same leader who ended his life on another mountain, not Mount Sinai, but on Mount Nebo. Why? Because he misused his authority once. And this elder of elders was rebuked before all. This is about God's arrangements. Do you hear what I'm saying? This is where we step back and we say, Psalm 133 is talking about God's arrangements. And yes, they wind up having a hierarchical structure. Yes, we better pay attention to the necessity of, do we have things right at the top? Do we have things correct at the top? There is such disregard for truly appointed, anointed, and responsible men in the ministry. And yet we still claim that we're going to find beautiful unity. Well, dear brothers and sisters, I need to stress to your spirits as we think about the simile that God is giving. We think about how he places the beginning of this anointing upon the top of Mount Hermon. And I need to draw your hearts back to the reflection of the fact that this did not begin in the plains of Jordan or in the Jezreel Valley. Wide open spaces with lots of people gathered together as a starting point for redemptive work is a disaster in the making. I remind you of a particular wide open space where there were lots of people gathered together seeking to build unity as an illustration of how this is a disaster in the making. I bring you to the plain of Shinar. In Genesis chapter 11, we can read the first three verses. And maybe I can just observe, since it occurs to me, that here's three verses. Juxtapose these three verses over against the three verses of Psalm 133. What do we read here? And the whole earth was of one language. Ooh, glory to God. 
We're going to have unity very soon here. And was of one speech. And it came to pass that they all willingly joined and walked together to the east. And they found a wide open place called the plain of the land of Shinar. And they all lived there. This is all happening in the earth. Notice it's all happening in the earth. It's on the earth. It's on the plane of the earth. And so they think and others think. And believe me, this spiritual principle that I'm bringing to your heart, this instruction out of God's word is very necessary. Don't let it pass through your spirit in one ear and out the other. They said, hey, let's build something together. Let's make brick and burn them thoroughly. And we will create a bottom-up socio-religious entity to present before God. This will have a social element. We'll build bridges to one another. We'll get as many people involved as possible. We'll keep it religious. We'll build a tower up to God out of our bricks and our mortar. And yet that is presented to us as one of the quintessential illustrations of a unity that God spoke against that God condemned. Was that an isolated situation? Is that just a convenient illustration that I'm eisegetically forcing into the redemptive narrative? No, I don't think so. If you go over to the plains of Jordan, from whence Mount Hermon rises, once upon a time there was a man who we are told was a righteous man. He had certain instincts that were in the direction of righteousness and and, and, and biblical thought, his name was Lot. And he looked upon the plain of Jordan, we're told in Genesis 13, and he saw it was well watered. Here's a place that had a lot of resources. A lot of things were already set up. It's got internet connection. It's got a lot of space. It's got videographers. It's got a nice band. It's got a lot of men who have certificates and diplomas from different institutions. It's got a lot of watering. Why don't we dwell there and see what gets built within this place? And so Lot settled himself down in the plain of Jordan with the idea of building his family and building his future among them. All of that was beautiful for a time until those sobering words occurred that we read about in the same text in the 10th verse before the Lord destroyed it. No, that's not too strong, brothers and sisters, for me to make that connection. No, there's a lot that's out there religiously that hasn't yet passed the test of God coming down and seeing what men are doing on the earth and pronouncing His disposition toward it. And then how about the plain of Sinai? What happened on the plain of Sinai? You'll read about this in Exodus chapter 32. This same Moses that we were speaking about earlier, you know what is said to him by Almighty God? This isn't one of the Ten Commandments, except it is a command. He has to say to Moses, get you down. You know why you have to tell Moses to get down? Because Moses was higher up than the people. He was up in Mount Sinai, receiving the word from the Lord because that's how God arranged things. And part of God's arrangement for the rest of the redeemed people of Israel, all of them passed through the water and the sea. All of them had the Passover blood over their doorposts and lintels. And he told the rest of them, you are to wait until my servant receives a word from me 
before you discover how you're going to worship me and how we're going to conduct ourselves as a redeemed body of people. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And I don't know if this will reach your spirits or not, but the problem here is no more complicated, though it had awful results. And sometimes you read the results about the golden calf and you think, what awful people. No, that's not really how you should read it. This is no more complicated than the people who were interested in religion got tired of waiting for God to move and for God's minister who himself had to wait on God to get a thorough understanding of what God wanted to see. They were tired of waiting for Moses, waiting for what God was going to do in his ministry. So they began to build their own religion. And in this case, they got one of God's chief ministers to go along with them by virtue of the collective pressure that was down in the valley on God's ministry. And Aaron shrugged his shoulders built an altar and proclaimed a feast to the Lord. Does that sound familiar? And its most egregious manifestation is Roman Catholicism. Through the pressure of the valley, down among all the people, and this new Constantinian version of religion, according to popular sentiment, they built an altar to sacrifice Christ afresh over and over again, because the half-saved or not at all saved peoples that populated these churches, that's what they wanted. That was in keeping with their pagan practices. And secondly, they also began proclaiming feasts left and right. And that became religion in the name of Yahweh. Amen? They built a golden calf and said, this is your God. This is the Lord that brought you out. And why? Well, because we're not here to fast and pray. We're not here to wait on the Lord. We're not here to be assembled with reverence and godly fear. We're here to do something. We're Americans. We need to produce something. And there's books after book after book that explain to us how to do it. Yes, and they're all under the section of anthropology, if you follow what I'm trying to say, not theology. Well, God told Moses to go down and correct this situation. And that's what he did. And it's interesting to observe that the author to the Hebrews, who in the 17th verse of the 13th chapter says, obey them that have the rule over you and are over you in the Lord, for they watch for your souls. He says that in the location of Hebrews chapter 12 and the whole section from 18 to 29, which I'm not going to read in its entirety, but it says in part, you are not come onto the mountain that might be touched. In verse 18, The section begins with that language in verse 22. He says, but you are come onto Mount Zion. And in verse 25, he then says, see that you refuse not him that speaks. What kind of arrangement is this establishing toward the objective of unity and love and everyone speaking the same thing among the brethren? You hear what I'm saying, brothers and sisters? I trust you do. If there ever was going to be unity within the children of Israel, you know those three million or so that were brought out of Egypt? You know what I'm saying? God's covenant people for whom the prospect of unity was desired? Where else would you find biblical unity in the earth if not among the Jews? I ask you a question. Until they learned to listen to Moses 
and allow the anointing to come down by God's appointment through Moses to the rest of them, like a humble Joshua and Caleb did, would they ever have unity among themselves? Would God just say, well, people aren't listening, so let's change the plan. What I want to see is everybody loving one another. So we need to get rid of some of these legal obligations and just reduce this all down to a low common denominator that everybody can agree on. And we'll get the three million people celebrating and having a feast around that. That's called golden calf religion in the valley. That's not called an anointing that's coming down from Mount Sinai from the peak down to the people. And maybe someone thinks that under the law there could not possibly have been any dew or refreshment from God. I would just say, if you don't mind, very shortly, you hardly know much about redemptive history or the prospects of what was available at that time in, in terms of salvation out of the house of bondage. I'm just trying to say, brothers and sisters, we're not in heaven ourselves either. And we walk by faith and not by sight. But if you want the dew of heaven to come down upon you and that be the source of refreshment within which people come alive as lively stones and begin to see themselves arranged in the unity that God is looking for, which I do Agree, as is often argued, when people work together, what a powerful effect they can have collectively. But some opt to lower the need to get things right from the top, and they just go for the broadening of people together. And as I'm showing you, dear brothers and sisters, it might go up quick like the Tower of Babel. But when God assesses it, it comes crashing down because it isn't honoring him. This idea of refuse not him that speaks to a New Testament audience. Well, that certainly in part has to do with listening to the appointed ministry if they are called of God. When the demos replaces the theos, the telos will be chaos. When the people replace God as a starting point, the end will be chaos. I'm just going to give you a few ideas in closing about this that just support this. Once you get the idea, you can see all sorts of testimony that supports this concept. How about the way your Bible begins? What is the language of the beginning of the Bible? In the beginning, God. Now, I would recommend, at least under certain reflections about the revelation of God, put a long pause after the word God. You may have heard of the gap theory. I don't embrace the gap theory in terms of the way in which creation works and, you know, the supposed renewal of the earth and all that sort of thing. But I have my own gap theory. My own gap theory is there should be a gap between God and created. In the beginning, God. I've just been observing a pause. That's what that space was. Let's think about that. Let's get that down. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Then he creates. That's where we come into the picture. In the beginning, it starts from the very top. Then you get creation. That's divine order. When God gave the Decalogue, this same principle was observed. And it's interesting that one could argue he gives six words 
relative to human relationships and affairs among and within the created order. And one could say, well, that must be more important then. He gives six commands over against four commands relative to himself. But you know that that's not the way to think about it. As a matter of fact, if you look at the number of words within the space in the Hebrew of verses 1 through 16 of Exodus 20, you'll see that most of the words are statements about our relationship with God. And that is, as it were, the first table. What are you supposed to do when God gives the Decalogue something as foundational in its orientation to our spirits as to how we should relate to God as is the Ten Commandments? I'm not saying we're under the Mosaic Covenant. I'm saying it's the initial lesson to orient the human heart and you should not lose that teaching. That is a matter of continuity. That principle should be carried over into our lives. And how does it start? It starts, look up and get things right with God. That's how it starts. Then it says, now look around and get things right with your neighbor. But here's a key qualifier to that second portion. As directed by God. How important that is. I could write a volume on that that would capture your attention, but I'm not particularly interested at this moment in doing that because the volume that I would write, though it would interact with all kinds of other literature and thought patterns and philosophies and might engage your thinking, it would all be in the interest of one thing, that even when we get to the very important thing of loving our neighbor and reaching out to one another and trying to build some sort of community among ourselves as believers and also embracing our other human beings in the image of God and loving and caring for them, which I fully embrace, even then, if you've approached this properly, you recognized or learned when you looked up first, I am the Lord your God and get your whole life right with God, you realize from this point forward, everything I do has to be directed by God. So even when I look down and around to my neighbor, I cannot relate and manifest love and come up with my own plans and programs and outreaches in any configuration that I feel like. I need to do it always under the direction of God. If you fail that, you didn't spend enough time on the first tablet. You're a humanist. And you just read past the first tablet quick and said, what God really cares about is my neighbor. Well, God does care about your neighbor enough to tell you, you don't know how to fix your neighbor. So get things right with me and listen to my instruction all down the road. Jesus himself confirms this order of things. In Matthew 22, there was a nomikos who came to the Lord Jesus. He's not a grammatikos or a Pharisee. He is a lawyer. And his title comes from the noun Nomos, which means law. So he was among that class of Jews who were expert in the civil application of the Mosaic law. They were the guides and guardians of the public conscience. In our times, we would say they were the woke among the folk. Now, given how long this message has been, I don't feel it appropriate 
to buttress my remarks at great length. I'll have to leave some of these things for your own reflection and for your own Berean examination if you wish to look these things up. So I'm going to mostly make the statements because I don't want to tax you too much and we are heading to the end here. But the observation I'm making is legitimate, that the lawyers were the class of individuals that were positioned among the populace that were effectively their public conscience. They told you what to cancel and what not to cancel. They told you how your conscience should think about these various things. They were trained to know how to relate to the the, the body of belief systems that otherwise is a jumble in your brain, and they told you how to sort it out. For example, I'll give you this statement about the nomikos from a theological dictionary. It reads as follows, Long before the time of our Savior, Jesus, the law, written and oral, had become the absolute norm of Jewish life. Every detail of life, civil as well as religious, was regulated in the minutest manner by the law. It was impossible for the ordinary Jew to be fully acquainted with the innumerable statutes referring, for example, to Levitical purity or the keeping of the Sabbath and to apply them to the fresh cases that emerged daily. And yet his standing before God depended upon his scrupulous observance of these statutes. It was absolutely necessary, therefore, that a special class of men should devote themselves expressly to the study of the law. And these were the men who, like Gamaliel, who we are told is a nomo didaskilos in Acts chapter 5. Gamaliel was a doctor of the law. And there was an issue that erupted about the apostles within the body politic. And Peter and the apostles were brought before the Sanhedrin and They had to decide what they're going to do about this because a new sort of energy, a new sort of position began to manifest among them. And it was that which Peter said, we ought to obey God rather than men. And the possibility that that could happen among us as Jews, that some are saying that what you're doing is not an obedience to God, and now we Christians have to obey God, and the Sanhedrin was ready to just do what they did to Jesus and just crucify him. But Gamaliel, being a doctor of the law, like a jurist or a lawyer, had studied all these issues, and he said, you better take heed to yourselves what you're doing. You better pause and think about this. And what I'm trying to say to you is they were the gatekeepers of the public conscience. And I know it's sort of a liberal-leaning gatekeeping in our time over against a law-leaning gatekeeping among the lawyers of of, of Paul's day. But the principle is the same. If you were living within that community... You had to first check what the lawyers were saying about it to make sure you weren't going to get canceled and saying the right thing. So I'm saying to you that a lawyer came to Jesus, tempting him, we're told in Matthew 22, and he says, didaskile, or didaskilon, master, what is the entole megale? What is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, he did not say, the greatest thing you can do is love your neighbor. It's not what he said. Not first. And that matters. 
I'm teaching Psalm 133. I hope you understand that I actually am. I'm saying that doesn't come first. If you want to build biblical unity, you need to observe what we are saying that God is showing us. You have to get things right from the top down. And Jesus says, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And before Jesus even goes on to what he'll call the second, which I agree, and he said, it's like it, but it's not it. It's similar, but it's not the same thing as loving God first with all your heart and all your mind. It's similar. It's still love. It's still wanting to see affection and a right relationship, but it's not the same thing as the first. He says, Aute esti prote kai magale entole. This is the first and great commandment. You can't do much more than that to underscore what I'm trying to say. My dear brothers and sisters, this is first and the most important thing. If you're thinking of biblical unity, brothers and sisters, get this right first. This is the first and great commandment. Get things right from the top down. The second is like to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's no more complicated than that. Nobody's arguing that Babylon and the Tower of Babel cannot be built, by which I mean that humans don't have the ability to do it. You'll never see that happening. No one's saying it can't be. No one is saying that tents cannot be pitched in the Jordan Valley. No one is arguing that a megachurch cannot be built from the half-baked bricks of cultural relevance in the mortar of the social gospel. But what the Bible teaches us is that is not where God commands the blessing. No, there is where the Lord rebukes the confusion. And from there, he says, come out, my people. I close with bringing you back to Acts chapter 2. And here we see the start of the building project of all the churches. And we read in Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were with one accord and one place. But doing what? Making a plan out of their own ingenuity? They were in prayer in one accord. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. Sitting comes before sending. Revival in church growth must come down from heaven like an announcement from the Spirit of God that is effectively saying the time has come. And we read that in that situation, everyone was filled with the Spirit. No one was left out. Everyone was filled, brothers and sisters. But then within that community that started by a unity within the simple act of prayer in seeking God. That's where their unity started. It wasn't this whole complex program and all of this 
This, this human energy striving to try to build something. They were just together in an upper room seeking God while a relative false religion was very active all around them. The Bible tells us devout men had gathered from all over the Mediterranean. They were devout to a certain extent, but they didn't know how to gather in an upper room and just seek the face of God and gather in that simplicity, realizing that when God is going to build His church, you aren't going to start it yourself. It's going to come from above, like a sound from heaven, like an intrusion of Almighty God, effectively announcing the time has come. And then all will participate in that. And yet in verse 14, we read this remarkable statement, a certain man by the name of Peter, about whom we've already thought when we looked in Matthew chapter 16, a certain man by the name of Peter stood up. He stood up in a place of functional prominence and authority. And he stood up, and with him were the other apostles. They were the ones that were standing. That leaves about 108 that were still sitting, if we begin with about 120. Peter stood up. This is a picture and a metaphor for what I'm describing to you. They all were sitting together, but then the Spirit of God came. And God is going to begin to build a church and we're going to find out at the end of all of this, they are going to praise God and they're going to have favor with all the people. There is going to be a outreach to their neighbors that is going to be winsome and well-pleasing. And the Lord added to the church, the Bible tells us, daily such as should be saved. Amen? The Lord was building His church And we know they had great unity among themselves as it went along these lines. And I'm showing you that what you see developing here is exactly what began to be arranged more and more. It starts right here. All of them sitting. All of them seeking God. No one higher than the other. Nobody knows exactly what's going to happen. But then the Spirit of God comes and Peter is anointed to stand up and anointed he was. If you hear his Pentecost sermon, he stands up and with him and you might see, you know, just below him were the 11 others that were standing with him with the 108 still sitting. And then Peter lifts up his voice and says, men and brethren, I am here to tell you what this is. This is God. 